Jesus Christ was a master storyteller. Not only did that make him interesting uh, to listen to, but it also allowed people to open up to the story, to hear it, to remember it, and then come to understand, wait a second, that story is about me. I'm in that story. In some ways, we let our guards down when we're hearing a story about someone else and we're moving along sympathetically with the characters of the story. Uh, but when we begin to reflect on it, because we're remembering what the story taught, we begin to say, did he mean that was about me? One of the best examples is found in Luke chapter 15 in a series of uh, three stories that he tells uh, because of the contrast between the people who are coming to him out of need and the criticism that he is receiving from the religious elite. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. The Romans were occupying Israel and part of the occupation meant that the Israelis had to pay tribute, and hence they were taxed. The way that they were taxed is they recruited some of the Jews themselves to turn on their own people to represent the Romans to go and demand taxes from them, and the way in which they made their living is they collected more tax than was actually due kept the difference and turned into the Romans uh, what was actually due. And these traitors, in a sense, uh, these collaborators with Rome were hated universally by the people. They felt that pressure and hatred for being so selfish as to care more about money than their own people. And with that guilt that was piling upon them, tax collectors were coming to hear Jesus talk about forgiveness and relationship with God. Other sinners of various kinds also realized their sin and were listening to the truth and interested in how Jesus was saying they could have relationship with God. But criticism is coming from the religious leaders who were self-righteous, who believed that they were keeping the law perfectly, that they were loved by God, appreciated by God, and looked down on all people who were not performing as well as they felt that they were performing. And they kept themselves aloof from the ones that they considered to be sinners. In fact, they felt to have anything to do with sinners would actually taint themselves. They didn't, in a sense, want to get themselves dirty by dealing with sinners. And they criticized Jesus, saying, if you're going to meet with sinners, if you're going to even eat with sinners, eating with someone was as if you were extending fellowship and acceptance to them. If you're going to eat with sinners, we shouldn't listen to you, because that means you're no better than these sinners that we reject. You hear this in verse 2 where it says the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus told a series of parables to answer the question. 
The parables serve two purposes. One, to talk about what you do when a person is lost. You go to the person and help him be found. Uh, similarly, uh, he gave the illustration of a doctor going to the sick. You know, what good is it to be a doctor if you're not willing to see sick patients? If you're a doctor, you take an oath that you're to help people who are sick. So I, like a physician, are going to those who are sick. As the Son of God himself come from the Father, as the one who will lay down his life as a sacrifice to pay our penalty so that God the Father can forgive us, he is coming to announce how salvation is found. It is to repent, to turn from your sin and embrace the love that God is extending to you and be willing to accept his offer of a free gift of salvation. So the stories relate both to these sinners that are coming looking for the truth of the gospel and also to these religious leaders who are criticizing him for associating with them. The first one, is about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. He says, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds him? These kinds of stories are easily relatable because they had many shepherds in their society and they completely understood what it would be like to lose one and how you would drop everything and go find it. I don't know if you're paying attention to the news. A couple in their 70s who regularly vacationed in a cabin in the woods north of San Francisco who were used to taking wilderness hikes went for a Valentine's weekend uh, to celebrate in a cabin, uh, decided to take a hike into the forest and became lost. Uh, they didn't return, their kids became worried, they reported them, and for the last eight days, a hundred volunteers were scouring the woods. After a few days, they began to say, this is not a uh, rescue mission, this is a recovery mission, which means they don't expect to find them alive, they're at least uh, trying to find their bodies, and they began to send boats out to scour the water, thinking they might find a floating body. Well, they found them. They found them alive. They were just walking through the woods. They heard someone calling. They thought they were listening to other rescuers. No, they were listening to the couple. Uh, it went down to the 30s at night. They survived by drinking out of a puddle. And the kids who are on TV this morning announcing how they're thrilled to have their parents back are praising the searchers for not giving up. Now, if you have a person that's lost like that, how long would you search? Imagine searching for people you've never met because there's value in human life. I have five children. And when I only had three children, we had one son that was uh, four years of age. Uh, we don't have big malls in Dubuque. Uh, so whenever we would travel to a larger city, uh, we would uh, go and visit a mall. Uh, we nicknamed our little mall the Small because it didn't have very many stores. 
the mall that I'm describing was so large, in fact, it had a carousel, and the kids remembered this mall because every time we went to that one, we let them go on the carousel, and it brought very happy memories. It even had a toy store, a, a whole store that was nothing but toys. So, of course, uh, we'd go in the toy store and let the kids look around. So the four-year-old got particularly entranced by certain toys of his age, and eventually it came to the point where we needed to keep moving along. And so we took him by the hand and led him away into the whole reason why we were there, which was a clothing store, which is of little interest to a four-year-old. So we're looking at the clothes, uh, looking for clothes for the, the kids, and the two older ones are still there. And we turn around, and our four-year-old is gone. So he's of great value to us. Uh, much more than a sheep. When you hear the story of a shepherd leaving the 99 behind to go look for the one, uh, you're, you're sensing like, well, can't you just say that 99 are worth more than one and I should stay and protect the 99 from being attacked by wolves or to make it relevant for us here in this part of the country, coyotes? Uh, shouldn't I stay and protect them and just count the one a loss? No, he's saying that lost one is so valuable, I'll take the risk to go find that lost sheep. And when he finds it, uh, he'll lay it on his shoulders and rejoice. And when he comes home, he'll call together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. We're not about to give up on a four-year-old kid in a mall especially a large mall. And so we immediately looked through the store, didn't find him. We went out uh, into uh, the main corridor, looked all around, couldn't find him. We were thinking like, where would he go? And after a few minutes of frantic searching, it suddenly dawned on me, toy store. He didn't go back to that singular toy that he was so interested in in the toy store, did he? So I headed straight there and there he was, innocently standing in front of the toy, staring at it and did not even consider himself lost, was very happy where he was. He wanted that toy. And in many ways, we get so fixated on things that aren't good for us necessarily that we get ourselves lost and don't even realize that we're lost. And Jesus is saying, if you don't come to terms with the fact that you've rejected the God who loves you, and you're living independently and rebelliously against him, then you're not going to have eternal life with him, and you'll remain in a state of rebelliousness, and you'll be lost from him forever. You don't want that, do you? Uh, to drive the point home even more, he then tells the story of a woman who has 10 silver coins, loses one coin, and does not, doesn't she not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? I used to wear contacts uh, when I was young married. Uh, I wore glasses from junior high until a young married. I got contacts, uh, but they were hard lenses. I had astigmatism and I needed a, a special kind of lens. And it, uh, my eyes would dry out and if I blinked in a certain way, the contact would pop out. Now here's the funny thing about losing a contact. Not only is it tiny and not only is it clear, but now you are difficult in your sight trying to find this little thing. And so repeatedly, my wife would come to the rescue. I'd be down on the carpet going back and forth, you know, with one good eye, one bad eye, and, and trying to find uh, the contact lens. And 
out of graciousness and kindness, she would get down on the carpet as well on her hands and knees and search with me. And regularly, nine times out of ten, she was the one that found the contact lens. And it was a moment of great rejoicing. I did not have spares. Uh, she said, uh, when she found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, these stories of everyday life that we can relate to so easily are to awaken us to the sense we're lost. And yet God would rejoice over us if we'd come to understand our lostness and our need to receive forgiveness from God and accept the offer of salvation provided by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The most famous story is the one that comes next, and it's a story uh, that goes into great detail about two sons. In many ways, we think of only the rebellious son, and we think, well, that's the lost son, uh, that's the one that we concentrate on. But you remember how the story began, that he is being criticized by religious leaders who say, I can't believe you're soiling yourself by relating to these sinners, even eating with them. Don't do that. And he, that group is represented by the older son. Here's a father who has two sons, neither of which are in perfect relationship with him, whether the younger son, who's openly rebellious, has a relationship with him or not, compared to the older son, who never seems to be disobedient at all, but neither has a loving, accepting relationship with the father because of his own self-righteousness, both of them need to realize their mistake and to be willing to accept their father's extravagant love and grace. Verse 11, he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Now, what most of us fathers would expect would happen next is uh, we would drive that insolent son right out of our house and disinherit him and say, don't you ever come back. What young whippersnapper is going to come to his father and say, you know, I've been thinking about this, and I really don't care about you at all, and I don't want anything to do with you. You might as well be dead as far as I'm concerned. I just want your money. Can you imagine a son saying that to his father and says, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to be on my own. When you die, I'll get an inheritance. I want you to give me my inheritance now. It's so ridiculous None of us would expect this to take place. But the father in this story is representing God himself. And God's love and acceptance and forgiveness and even tolerance temporarily of our rebellion against him as he's awaiting the response of his offer of love and acceptance, extravagant grace, should cause us a level of surprise to say, is our God so loving that he would treat us as graciously and as kindly as this father in the story? Verse 12, it says, so he divided his wealth between them. 
According to law and culture in that day, the older son would get two-thirds or double inheritance and the younger son would get one-third. And so most commonly that kind of wealth is tied up in real estate. I imagine it would have taken time for the younger son to sell the real estate that was given to him. He probably was in such a hurry to get the money he sold it at a loss. He just wanted money and wanted to go sow his wild oats and, and party with his friends and just spend the money that he felt that he was due, having been born into the family. Sure enough, verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country. He didn't even want to be in the same country as his father. There is so much distance between them. And he there squandered his estate with loose living. And our, mon- our minds can run wild with all the ways in which you could waste money if you are living for immediate pleasure, no thought of the future at all. This is a sinner running from God. And it's a picture, uh, really, of every single one of us in our rebellion against God. However, the money's not going to last forever. And in verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. Friends, this is not coincidence. As the story is being told, Jesus is telling us how the Father deals with us. He is patient. He is generous. He is kind to us. Uh, He allows us to decide for ourselves if we will accept the free offer that he makes to us. He is offering us eternal life and eternal relationship with us, forgiveness uh, of our debts, forgiveness of our sins, fellowship with him. And the question is, will we accept it? Or will we take all the blessings that he's offered us and just squander them on ourselves? My mother said to me when I was young, and I had a hard time believing it at first, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. As a young child hearing uh, her say that to me, I was thinking like, I'm not so sure I agree with that. And it's, it's true. In our selfishness, every one of us would be willing to say, I want what I want, and I don't care how that hurts other people. My wife loves uh, to cook desserts uh, for people who are coming over to her house or people coming to an event at the chapel. It's often in a 9 by 13 pan, and she cuts them into little squares. Now, the interesting thing about this, say, for example, she was making brownies and all, is uh, when it came my turn, I would always just take one uh, on the edge. And she made some remark to me about how the ones in the center are better than the ones on the edge. And so that began to settle in with me, and I began to wonder, is that true about brownies, that the center ones are better than the ones on the edge? And I tried a center one, and I decided she was right. And so every time from that point on that I would go up to the brownie dish that she had made is whether or not there were still ones around the edge, Even if necessary, I would dip into the middle and take one of the middle brownies for myself. She caught me and announced, that's not how you take 
brownies out of a dish. You always start in the corner. You always work your way across the entire pan, and you can't take a middle one unless the middle ones are available. She says, you're being selfish. And I, and I said, you're my wife. You made it. Why would I not get any piece I want out of it? Why can't I take the center piece? And she says, because that's selfish. You can't do that. It goes on and on and on with all the uh, ways in which I could illustrate that I'm not even aware of my own selfishness. But we all, because of our fallen nature, having inherited sin from our forefather, Adam, having been born with a disposition towards sin, with a sin nature, having ratified that by committing personal acts of sin, every single one of us is innately selfish. And consequently, like those searchers that were going out looking for lost people, they could have become selfish at some point and said, it's been days. These people are over 70. It's been 30 at night. They're not alive anymore. Let's just get up and go home. But they searched until they found them, and they found them alive. It's an amazing truth that we should not be so selfish as to prioritize ourselves and our interests above those of other people. But here you have a picture of a young man stealing his inheritance ahead of time, squandering it with loose living, and now sovereignly God sends a famine so that he is impoverished and hungry. In your own life, if God has dealt with you in which there is a piling on of difficulties, you shouldn't say to yourself, oh, complete happenstance, these things just happen. God wouldn't have any hand in this at all. Now, it is true that he lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust alike. In other words, there's blessings and even difficulties that come upon all of us. But it's also true that he allows circumstances in our lives in ways that we don't always see that allows him to be glorified through our experiences. Some of what he does to us is for training purposes. And you could name almost any person in the Bible and say, were those difficulties on purpose to train that person? So you talk about Joseph getting sold into slavery. Well, when he told his parents and his brothers about how he was going to be over them, that did not help family dynamics at all. And so God, who planned to have him rescue his people from starvation, had to work him through a number of trials and humble him before he was ready to be basically the person who ran Egypt and to save his people from the famine. Uh, Moses, whom God wanted to use, to lead his people from freedom from slavery in Egypt, had to spend half his life out in the desert, uh, had to get past the thought that he didn't speak well and that he should not be God's spokesperson to Egypt and to the Pharaoh. God lets us be trained through difficulties. The one that's the hardest one to understand is what he did in Job's life and how he allowed such difficulty in Job's life to demonstrate that, yes, a man can love God for nothing because God is God, our creator, and worthy of our worship and love 
whether or not we receive anything in return. Job went through that in great difficulty and came out the other side with great blessing, but he didn't feel it while it was happening. And God works with us in such ways to cause us to realize what we're bringing upon ourselves. The famine, and I'm saying, is God's sovereignty. So what does this young man do? He went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Again, as the story is going along, you, you could just see the irony of this all. There is no job that would be more repulsive to a Jew than being starved to death while you're feeding swine. Verse 16 says, He would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything. Notice he had lots of friends around him while he had money and was lavishing the money upon them. But the moment the money is gone, the friends are gone, and now he's all by himself. And he realizes that he has brought this on himself. It's his fault. And this happens uh, to all of us. We do things that have consequences. And we say, rescue me from these consequences. Don't let this happen to me. But sometimes God lets the consequences happen to us to teach us lessons. I had an older brother that got drunk and thrown in jail. He called my father from jail said, come get me out. My father had a dear friend in our church. Uh, who is a lawyer, and so he calls his friend up and said, what should I do, what should I do? And the lawyer friend says, leave him in jail overnight. He can get out tomorrow, but he needs to spend the night in jail. Now that's tough love, I tell you. And so my dad decided, okay, if, if he's, if he's going to do what he's doing and if he needs to spend a night in jail to kind of wake up to which direction his life is going, we'll leave him in jail overnight. That may happen to you in a metaphorical sense in which you feel like God's left me in jail overnight and I don't like what's happening to me one bit. What is he trying to say to me? And this is where the young man wakes up and says, I had a generous, loving father that I did not appreciate. Why, even when I demanded of him my inheritance before he died, he gave it to me. What am I doing here? I'm going to starve to death. It says in verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? I'm dying here with hunger. I'll get up. I'll go to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. Notice he lists his sin against God first. And in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, that's getting really, really low when you realize, basically, I've divorced myself from the family. You have no obligation to take me back. In fact, I don't think you should take me back, in my own estimation of what's right and wrong. But I know you hire people, and I know they eat well. Would you take me back just as one of your hired men? And so that's his plan. He's thinking like, I can go back as a hired person. At least I'll be able to eat. And he's willing to admit, I have wronged you. Now, here's the funny thing about our pride 
and our selfishness and our rebellion against God. The hardest thing of all is to admit, I did it. It's my fault. As believers, when we maintain our fellowship with the Father, it says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess means we have to say the same thing about sin that God is saying. Humlegeo means say the same thing. We have to agree with God. I did it. I was wrong. And I deserve whatever is coming to me. When I was teaching at uh, Emmaus Bible College in, in Dubuque, uh, we usually had undergrads, but occasionally we'd get a student who'd already been through a bachelor's degree but wanted to study the Bible with us, and they'd usually take a, a one-year certificate in a master's level. And so we had a young man that came along uh, who had gone to an Ivy League school and uh, wanted to get some Bible, and so he came and studied with us. I befriended him. I thought he was a, an amazing young man, and, and I greatly enjoyed him. One of the things he said to me is, you're too lenient on your students. You're too generous to them. You need to hold them much more accountable. Uh, for example, I gave them the ability to turn in material late for a reduced grade. And so you'd, learn, you'd lose 3% the first day and then 1% uh, every day after that. So if, if you had something going on in your life in which you couldn't get your work done on time, you could turn it in a few days late and take a lower grade. And he was saying, you should not do that. That is too easy and merciful. You should say, I accept no late work. And I said, my profs have been generous to me in my past. Why would I not extend generosity to my students? He completely disagreed with me. Along comes final exam week. The schedule is completely different because rather than having hour-long classes, we have two-hour-long finals with breaks in between. And so it's not the same schedule at all. I go to meet the class that he's in. I give the exam to everyone but him. He didn't show. I even asked some of the students, do you know where he is? They, oh, he's in the dining hall eating breakfast. What I was realizing just from experience is he's forgotten we're on a completely different schedule. He's totally missed the final exam. And I began to chuckle to myself at the thought that what is he going to say when he realizes that he has exhorted me not to have mercy on students. And so when the exam was over, I just went up to my office. I left my door ajar, just waiting for him to come bounding in. And sure enough, he burst through the door uh, fairly uh, quickly after that. And the first words out of his mouth, in a very loud voice, was, just go ahead and fail me. And I said, I'm not going to fail you. But at least he's staying true to his ethic. Don't have any mercy. Don't have any grace. A deadline is a deadline. And I agree, a deadline is a deadline, and there should be penalties for not meeting the deadline. Uh, there is a reduction in a grade in, in my ethic, but I said, I'm not gonna fail you. Here is your exam. And, and he was trying to hold his ground for a while, and I said, I want you to write this exam. Take the exam, I'll grade it. I realize you just didn't understand the schedule. And so, he had to humble himself to accept my grace. It hurt his pride 
to accept my grace. And it's amazing how we'll get ourselves all stubborn. I have best friends right now where the husband and wife are not talking to each other because she lied to him and he's not forgiving her. And he's demanding that she confess the lie. She's admitted that she did it wrong, but he wants an apology for the lie. And he's refusing to talk to her until she admits that she lies and asks forgiveness. And she just continues to talk to him, and he just walks away. Well, we're at a complete impasse here. Their marriage is not going to go well if each one has dug in their heels and neither will say they're sorry to the other, neither will admit the faults that they have said, done in offending each other, and each one says, I'm waiting for the other one to break down first and admit that they were wrong and, and confess their sin and ask for my forgiveness. If we're going to do it that way, every one of our marriages are going to be ruined. And I always advise the husband as the leader of the relationship to be the first to break this impasse and to apologize and to ask for forgiveness and to admit what they've done is wrong. What is it about us that we just are so stubborn that we won't accept grace? Here is a young man who says, I don't deserve to be his son, but at least I want to eat. So he got up, he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. In that culture, men didn't run. Now, it's true that if you tried to run, you'd have to lift up uh, your flowing robes just so that you wouldn't trip over them. But men didn't run. Uh, my wife grew up on the mission field, and I was uh, going down there to spend uh, the summer uh, when I was younger, and her uh, brother was there and uh, was going to take me on a, a little errand and it was super hot when I arrived so I put on shorts and, and greeted him and he says put on pants you can't wear shorts and I said it's hot outside and he goes men don't wear shorts and I said well I'm from California and when it's hot we wear shorts and he goes in our country men don't wear shorts if you were a boy, you could wear shorts. If you're playing football or soccer, you could wear shorts. Other than that, men don't wear shorts. And so, kind of grudgingly, I went back and put on long pants again. In their culture, men didn't run. How was it that this father saw the son from a distance? What it means to me is he was looking for him on the horizon every single day. And when his son was visible on the horizon, he didn't wait for the son to come and fall on his knees and apologize. He ran to his son and with extravagant love and grace. And I, and I mean that with emphasis because it should shock us how forgiving this father is with extravagant love and grace. He felt compassion, ran, embraced him, and kissed him. The son starts to give his speech, but doesn't make it all the way through. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he's about to say, 
Can you hire me as one of your servants? But the father says to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe. That would be his father's robe that was only worn on special occasions. Put it on him and put a ring on his hand. That would be the symbol of leadership in the home to put that ring on his hand. Sandals on his feet. That's ironic. He comes back barefoot. Imagine traveling clear from a foreign country back home again barefoot, just indicating how indigent he is. Bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and has come alive again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. And the picture is how much our God, our Creator, loves us and wants relationship with us. And even if we've hurt him deeply by our sins against him, our rebellion against him, our rejection of him, our ignoring him, whatever it is that we have done, he lovingly extends to us forgiveness if we're willing to accept it. But we have to be willing to accept it. And in the context of the story, Jesus is saying, it seems like these tax collectors and sinners are more willing to accept God's grace than you self-righteous religious leaders. What's wrong with you that you think you've not offended God? And that you don't need God's grace because you could perform so well that you're motivating God to accept you on the basis of what you've done? None of us could live perfectly enough to earn or to motivate God to forgive us on our own. Every single one of us is forced to humble ourselves before God and accept his offer of grace. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. He said to him, your brother's come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. And you would hope the older brother, who's missed his younger brother, would lovingly, like his father did, accept the son coming back humbled and embarrassed in seeking forgiveness. But instead he became angry. He was not willing to go in. And so his father came at him and began imploring him. You see, this is a story not about one lost son. This is a story about two lost sons. One who's rebellious, representing the tax collectors and sinners, and the other who has been obedient Outwardly, but not inwardly. Inwardly, he's resentful. Inwardly, he's keeping score. Inwardly, he's saying, all these things I wish I could have had and my father has not given them to me. In many ways, he has the same rebellious attitude that the younger brother has. He said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you've never even given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, notice he's no longer a brother, he's just that son of yours, who's devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? The father, in a very loving, accepting way, says, Son, 
You have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. It's amazing how extravagant and gracious our Father's love is for us. Are we willing to accept him and how he joyously wants to welcome us into his family? Many of us, with our own moralism, our own self-righteousness, have been using our father for our own selfish purposes as much as that younger son did when he squandered his father's wealth. The story tells us quite clearly whether we've lived what seems like an obedient life or a very rebellious life, every single one of us has sinned against God. And every single one of us needs God's forgiveness. And God graciously is extending the offer of forgiveness to us because his son paid our penalty. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins. And by his work, the Father extinguished his wrath and is offering us the gift of salvation, of his love and relationship with him if we'd accept it. Story after story we've given about how we could very self-righteously, very selfishly say, I don't need anyone's mercy and grace. I can do it on my own. As I was rearing my kids, there came a point in which they'd straight out say to me, I'll do this on my own. It could be as simple as when they had to learn to tie their shoes to go to kindergarten. You start, you used to dress them because they needed the help and then they get to that point where I can do this on my own, and it continues for the rest of their lives, whereas I can do this on my own. I don't need your help. And it's just an illustration of how we feel towards our Heavenly Father. But here he is with overwhelming love and willingness to accept us if we will repent, turn from our sin, and accept his free gift of salvation. If we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be saved. Would you believe? Father, we come before you thanking you for your son Jesus Christ who willingly gave his life for us. We thank you for how he has taught us and how clearly he's taught us. Oh, Father, by the work of your Holy Spirit within us, convict us of our sin and draw us to yourself in repentance. May we be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life in relationship with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.